0: everyone this is your host john hagadorn and welcome to 1001 heroes legends histories and mysteries podcast today's story the pendleton rescue of 1952 the us coast guard's greatest rescue the february 1952 nor'easter that hit new england was ranked as a category 1 on the northeast snowfall impact scale and was accompanied by extremely high winds which lasted for two full days a long time for a winter hurricane Causing untold damage to buildings, roadways, marinas, boats, and ships, and taking over 42 lives with it between February 17th and 19th of that year. The 1952 nor'easter was actually an extratropical or mid latitude cyclone brought about by the weakening of the west to east jet stream, which dipped from the latitude of Boston to the latitude of Charleston, South Carolina, and then met with a low pressure system which had formed over the Gulf. The meeting of the two caused an incredibly dangerous storm which coalesced over Long Island and struck everything north of there in the next days. In Maine alone, over 1,000 travelers became stranded on roadways, their cars becoming buried in deep drifts before they had a chance to get off the highways, with some not being found for days. It was a blinding, wind-driven, freezing hell on land. In the ocean, off Cape Cod, Massachusetts, All this was magnified by extremely high seas that carried murderous 70-foot waves, whipped up by constantly increasing winds that reached hurricane force in places. Thousands of stories of near-death experiences were to come out of that storm, and there were many heroes, police, rescue, and civilian, involved in saving lives, but none were as constantly busy and facing extreme danger for extended periods of time as the men of the United States Coast Guard. In the harbors, where boats were ripped from their moorings, the Coast Guard worked tirelessly through the storm to save boats and people from destruction. Outside of those harbors, there were boats and ships trying to escape being grounded and capsized on the many shoals surrounding Cape Cod by heading for deeper water and trying to ride out the storm. Two huge tankers were caught off the coast of Cape Cod in this powerful storm, and both were broken in two by a combination of freezing conditions, deadly high winds, and 60- to 70-foot waves, broken in two, in halves, and those halves being carried in random directions apart from each other, with crews occupying both halves. It happened in the middle of the night, when freezing, snow-laden, cyclonic winds were whipping waves up to heights most men will never witness, that the Coast Guard Rescue Station in Chatham, Massachusetts, received the call that a T-2 tanker, called the Fort Mercer, had radioed in a distress signal. Hours later, the Coast Guard was to receive word that a second tanker, the Pendleton, had also broken in half, and its crew was in desperate straits. Considering the conditions out there, few people who were aware of the situation were giving much hope to the survival of either crew. Just five days earlier, the two huge tankers, each the size of about two football fields end-to-end, were sitting quietly at dockside in Baton Rouge and Norco, Louisiana, filling their tanks with 30,000 tons of heating oil and kerosene destined for the homes and businesses of New England. It was a warm, summer-like night in Baton Rouge on February 12, 1952. These tankers had been built during World War II and were called T2 tankers. They relied on steam power to turn the turbines, which in turn produced electricity for huge electric engines. These were 6,600 horsepower engines that drove a single huge 11-foot wide prop. These ships had been built in wartime and proved invaluable for moving fuel oil for the Allied war machine during World War II. There were hundreds of them, and they had been built quickly. There had been breakups, those ships splitting in half due to, as they would find out years later, the use of a lower quality welding steel in the hulls steel that could be overstressed in near-freezing conditions, steel that could be further stressed by loading procedures that placed too much weight in the center of the ship, and weakened steel that could come apart due to the constant pounding of monster waves. The Coast Guard and the American Bureau of Shipping had acknowledged the problem of those ships breaking in two, while not knowing why it was happening. That came later, and at the time required that these ships be reinforced so they saw to it that steel belts called crack arresters were installed both on the decks and below those T2 tankers. Crack arresters on T2s should be the picture below the definition of jerry-rigging in Webster's Dictionary. It was a cheap band-aid that sounded good, but still failed when put to the test. The crews were constantly stepping over the bands, sometimes tripping over them, so the question of why they were there was constantly on their minds. But crews working on gas and oil tankers weren't nearly as worried about the ship breaking in half as what would happen if just one spark showed up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And besides, the T-2s had helped win the war. Some pretty incredible stories about the staying power of those T-2 tankers came out of World War II. There was the story of the SS Ohio back in August of '42, when the Allies ran out of gas on Malta. The SS Ohio was their only hope. On August 11th of that year, German dive bombers found her in open water off North Africa, and she was straped and bombed for three days straight, but they couldn't sink her. An Italian submarine torpedoed her. She still didn't sink. Two Junker bombers crashed into her. She lost her rudder, and with holes in her hull, and the fact that she was full, caused her to ride so low that only 30 inches of her deck remained above water, and that was in calm seas. But two destroyers came to her aid, one on each side, and she made it. Just one more reason the Allies won the war. The 503-foot Pendleton departed Baton Rouge on February 12, 1952. It was laden with a full cargo of 122,000 barrels of kerosene and heating oil. The ship carried a crew of 41, including the master, the Brooklyn-born son of a Nova Scotia Sea Captain, Captain John Fitzgerald, who had served as a tanker captain during World War II. Late on the evening of the 17th of February, Pendleton arrived off Boston. The weather was foul with extremely limited visibility. Captain Fitzgerald, although eager to see his family and hopefully find safe anchorage, couldn't see the Boston Light Beacon through the blinding snow, making entry into that port too dangerous, and was forced to stand off the coast, heading his vessel east-northeast at a slow speed into Massachusetts Bay, into the prevailing sea conditions. The wind and sea conditions worsened throughout that night, building into a full-scale nor'easter gale with snow and high seas. By 4 a.m. on February 18th, the Pendleton began shipping seas over her stern, but the vessel still appeared to be riding well. Sometime after 4 a.m., the Pendleton rounded the tip of Cape Cod off Provincetown, Massachusetts, and assumed a more southerly course. The open seas were getting worse. Waves now approached 60 to 70 feet in height. The ship was getting pounded. At about 5.50 a.m. on the 18th of February, after a series of explosive cracking noises, the Pendleton took a heavy lurch and split in two. At the time of the break, the vessel's circuit breakers tripped, leaving the bow section without power. The stern section continued to operate normally, including all machinery and lighting. The bow section contained Captain Fitzgerald and seven other crewmen, all destined to perish. In the stern, the chief engineer, Raymond Sybert immediately took charge and mustered his 32 survivors and assigned them duties. Imagine for a moment you're looking at a cutaway section of a five-story hotel, lighted, being tossed in a blinding snow gale in 60-foot seas. All watertight entries have been secured. Alone, adrift, in mountainous seas, the stern section and its human cargo drifted south with a slight port list about six miles off Cape Cod. The bow section also drifted south, but at a further distance offshore. No SOS had been issued because the Pendleton stern section had no radio equipment to send the message. The bow section containing all the ship's officers had radio, but no power to operate it. These were the day before wireless radio systems. Right about the same time that the Pendleton split in half, the Fort Mercer was locked in a deadly battle for survival in the high seas off Cape Cod as well. Captain Frederick Petzel was doing his best to stay afloat, pointing his bow into the rising seas, holding position. His destination was Portland, Maine, and he was sure he would make it. He had ridden out storms before, but never one, he admitted later, as bad as this one. One of his crew, a man named Spike Walker, "'would later say this of their situation. "'The waves were wild, heaving, and precipitous. "'They rolled toward us unpredictably and without quarter, "'and as they drew near, "'they more closely resembled mountain ranges than ocean waves. "'They tossed our ship as if it was inconsequential, "'and we fought to hold our ground "'as the canyon-like troughs and steep green slopes "'swept by us on both sides.' At 8 a.m., Captain Petzl heard a sharp crack echo from the innards of his ship. At first, he wasn't sure of what happened, but soon he saw oil spewing from the starboard side of the Fort Mercer, and he knew the hull had cracked. He radioed the Coast Guard for assistance, and that call, in Morse code, was received by 20-year-old Coast Guardsman Len Mercer aboard the Coast Guard cutter Eastwind, which was 150 miles away, which, with the current winds and high waves, was many hours away looking for the Paolina, a fishing vessel which had called in an SOS. The typical distance for a radio distress call was about 30 miles in good weather, so many relied at that time on Morse code, which was also known as CW, for constant wave. The east wind immediately started heading for the Mercer. The Paolina and its crew were never found. At 10.30 a.m. on the 18th, the Fort Mercer broke in half. The two halves of the Fort Mercer were being tossed like toy boats about 20 miles offshore, while the Pendleton was about 10 miles offshore. By noon on the 18th of February, there were four separate hulks adrift off Cape Cod. But still no one realized that there were two ships that had broken up. By mid-morning on February 18th, the men at the Chatham Lifeboat Station, today known as Chatham Coast Guard Station, received word about the Fort Mercer's predicament. Orders were received for the station to launch a motorized lifeboat to assist the Ford Mercer. Nantucket Coast Guard Station had also received orders to launch motor lifeboats. With 43 crew members known to be aboard the Mercer, the stations did not have the luxury of deciding if the mission was too dangerous for lifeboats. The official Coast Guard response to all life-saving situations was semper paratus, meaning always ready. The unofficial motto was the one they lived by. You have to go out but you don't have to come back. At noon on February 18th, the station officer in charge, Bosun Clough, a native of Chincoteague, Virginia, ordered Bosun's mate Chief Donald Bangs to select his crew and man the CG-36383 life-saving boat at Stage Harbor and proceed to assist the Fort Mercer. The first life-saving boat had just left Brant Point Station Nantucket under the command of Chief Bosun's mate Ralph Ombry. This, as well as the boats that followed, was a 36-foot boat headed into seas twice its size in the middle of a raging cyclone. At the time, Boatsman's mate First Class Bernie Weber, chosen to remain behind for other duties, thought, My God, do they really think a lifeboat and its crew could actually make it that far out to sea in this storm and find the broken ship amid the blinding snow and raging seas with only a compass to guide them? If the crew of the lifeboat didn't freeze to death first, how would they be able to get the men up the storm-tossed sections of the broken tanker? He didn't know it at the time, but he would soon find out. Shortly after Chief Bangs and his crew left to assist the Fort Mercer, Bosun's mate Weber was ordered to the Chatham Old Harbor area where he and his crew would spend the next several hours helping local fishermen re their fishing vessels which had been moved by the ongoing Nor'easter. Back on the stern section of the Pendleton, Engineer Seibert's crew sighted the beach at about 2 p.m. At 2.55 p.m., the Chatham Lifeboat Station's radar picked up two blips about five and a half miles distant. At 3 p.m., Bosun Clough visually sighted the bow section of the Pendleton. Clough's report to the Boston Regional Coast Guard headquarters caused Coast Guard PBY aircraft number 1242 to be diverted from ongoing rescue operations further offshore involving the Fort Mercer. Shortly after 4 p.m., the PBY made the first positive identification of both sections of the Pendleton. The Coast Guard now knew for the first time it had two stricken T2 tankers and four different possible rescue situations, all in the very worst of weather. Bosun Clough's initial reaction was to dispatch his remaining crew, including bosun's mate First Class Weber, to the North Beach area between Orleans and Chatham in hopes they could render assistance to the Pendleton's crew if either section of the vessel came ashore. It soon became apparent that neither section would come ashore there, and the crew returned to the station to prepare to use the CG36500MLB to render aid. The Pendleton's stern section and its crew of 33 drifted close to shore, close enough that local residents could occasionally hear the ship's whistle and see the vessel as it galloped along up and down huge waves, "'frothing each time it rose or settled back into the sea. Bosun Clough soon ordered, "'Weber, pick yourself a crew. "'Y'all got to take the 36500 out over the bar and assist that ship. You hear?" "'With great trepidation, having seen the conditions offshore "'and knowing his likely fate, but understanding his duty, "'Weber replied, "'Yes, sir, Mr. Clough, I'll get ready. "'It was time to choose his crew. "'Only three men were available.' since other crew members had made themselves scarce when they heard that the CG36500 was to be sent. They all knew the Chatham Bar would likely kill anyone going out in a 36-foot boat right now. They had all witnessed wrecks in which larger boats were caught up in the maelstrom of currents and shoals and upended and tossed upside down on the beach, killing all occupants instantly. It was a dangerous, dangerous area, even in normal seas. "'Weber thought back to the lessons he had learned in his still young life. "'He had been the son of a well-known Methodist minister, "'and he, Weber, had wandered from the straight and narrow once too often. "'He was a good kid, but he had no direction, "'no rudder to guide his actions. "'It was the Coast Guard and a mentor named Frank Masachi "'who had weathered storms like this before and never given up. "'Masachi was his commanding officer, "'who, from the time freshly joined Bernie, was seventeen drilled him mercilessly in the ways of saving lives and gave him a direction and helped to turn him from an irresponsible teenager to a man. Bernie was with Masachi during an incredible rescue mission in a cold gale in 1950. The small crew had gone through hell that frozen night trying to save the crew of the Landry and each time were turned back to land frozen and exhausted four times. Four times they were turned back and four times Masachi wouldn't quit. "'Somehow they found the strength to carry a boat barefoot and freezing "'in a winter gale over 400 yards of sandbar "'and row it almost to within sight of the sinking Landry. "'But the Landry sank before they could reach them. "'How they made it back alive was a miracle. "'Masachi did not have the word quit in him. "'From that day on, neither did Bernie Weber. "'Nothing was impossible. "'Now it was 1952, and Bernie was looking for volunteers.' Those three men in the Chatham station who volunteered, knowing full well the danger, did so eagerly. Bosun's mate first-class Weber's volunteers included the station's junior engineer, engine man Andrew Fitzgerald, seaman Richard Livesey, and a crewman from the nearby Stonehurst lightship, seaman Irving Mask, who had been waiting for transportation back to his lightship. Of the four, Weber was the oldest, at the ripe old age of 24. We'll return to our story
2: First-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: And now, back to our story. At 5 p.m., Weber, Livesy, Fitzgerald, and Mask left the Chatham Lifeboat Station and, using Weber's Dodge truck, drove through the blinding snow down to the Chatham Fishing Pier, where a small dory was tied its job being to carry them out to the 36 foot long wooden rescue boat known as CG36500. The four men climbed down a small ladder and then climbed into the dory. They could just see the lifeboat which was moored out in the inlet through the heavy snow. It was rocking violently with the wind and the waves. They were all thinking the same thing. Their chances of surviving this didn't look good. At about 5.30 p.m as Weber and his crew readied their dory to row out to the life-saving boat. Local fisherman and neighbor, John Stello, yelled out over the din, You guys better get lost before you get too far out. Weber knew all too well what his friend was suggesting. Go out and probably die or get lost and live other days to talk about it. Weber asked Stello to call his wife Miriam and let her know about the rescue attempt. Stello and Weber had become close friends over the past two years the two living across from each other on Seaview Street. At 5.55 p.m., Weber and his last-minute crew left the pier in their wooden, 36-foot-long motorized lifeboat driven along by its single 90-horsepower gas engine. As Coxswain Weber turned his lifeboat into the channel, he could see the station's lights and hope for a hasty recall. Hearing nothing, he radioed the station and received the curt response, Proceed as directed. As the CG 36500 approached the dangerous Chatham Bar, they could see gigantic waves pounding North Beach. Weber and his crew began to sing Rock of Ages and Harbor Lights. Their voices were soon muffled by the thunderous roar of the ocean as it collided with the sandbar. Weber secured a long leather belt around his waist and fastened himself to the wheelman's shelter. They were now approaching the point of no return. The three young men with Bernie could do nothing but pray and place their trust in his skills and the stability of the lifeboat. Bernie was remembering the iron will of his friend and mentor, Frank Masachi, and thinking of the disappointment in his father's eyes when he told him he was not interested in joining the ministry. His father had wanted him to serve God. Maybe he was doing that just now, Bernie thought, as he pictured the men on the Pendleton praying for rescue before their stern half was swallowed by the sea. Weber later said that he had received a bolt of strength and courage at that moment and he knew what his duty was. He had to attempt this rescue. It was born inside of him and it was his job. There was nobody else. The words of the old hymn Rock of Ages repeated over and over in his mind. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee I dress helpless look to thee for grace, bow to the mountain fly, wash me savior or I die. The lighthouse beam swept across their small boat as it turned into a mountain of 60 foot high churning waves at the bar. The crew felt they had just driven at high speed into a concrete wall. A mountain of near freezing water lifted the CG36500 and tossed it in the air like a small toy and for the moment the men were airborne. They came crashing down, men in boat, and were quickly met by another wave, this one sending a torrent of water over the men, slamming them to the deck and soaking them to the skin. This wave shattered the boat's glass windshield, sending sharp pieces of glass into Weber's face and hair as he fell backward. The wave had turned the boat around 180 degrees in a second, so that it was now facing the shore. This, they all knew, was an extremely dangerous position to be in. And the boat needed to be quickly turned back before it breached. Weber tried to brush the glass shards out of his eyes and face and quickly looked to see if his three crewmen were still there. He saw that they were and regained his feet, steering the boat back around. The driving snow was hitting his face so hard he could barely open his eyes. He looked down on the console for his compass, his only means of navigation, and saw that it was gone, torn from its mount by the last wave. A series of waves continued to pound the boat, bending it at a 45-degree angle, but it refused to capsize. However, the engine died. The 36500 had one fatal flaw. The engine died if the boat rolled too much, and any boat caught out in waves like this couldn't last long without a motor. Andy Fitzgerald had heard it stutter and stop as well, and started making his way slowly from the bow where he was positioned back to the engine compartment. He was wondering how many minutes he would last if he was thrown overboard and decided that death would come quickly. He entered the tiny engine room just as another high wave slammed the boat and he was thrown onto the hot engine and then back against the hull, suffering first burns and then bruises. But he was able to reach the priming valve and the 90-horsepower motor kicked back to life. Just outside the engine compartment, Weber could see the waves were now even taller. But the good news was, that they were spread further apart. They had survived the Chatham Bar. Now he blindly pointed the boat toward the Pollock-ripped lightship, knowing that if he could find that, he could determine his position. The lifeboat and its crew cut through the tops of each wave, the waves now approaching 60 feet, six stories high, at full throttle. And then as they descended the other side, Weber had to throw the engine in reverse as they sped down that backside trying to keep the lifeboat from plunging the bow beneath the water and instantly sinking her when they hit the bottoms of the valleys. Livesey, Mask and Fitzgerald were all clinging to the pipe rail for dear life on one side of the lifeboat, being pounded by the driving snow and freezing spray. Bernie squinted at them and knew that one wrong move at the wheel could kill them all, himself included. He was not going to fail them. He thought of his wife Miriam sick at home, He was wondering who would be delivering the news to her that he was not coming back when he saw a mysterious dark shape rising up out of the surf, only 50 feet away. He slowed the lifeboat down. He called for Andy to turn on the searchlight, which was located on the bow. The light illuminated a large object not 50 feet away. It was a steel hulk. It looked dead and ghostly. And Weber thought, my God, we're too late. On board the Pendleton. Raymond Seibert, the chief engineer, had spent the past 24 hours doing everything possible to keep his 32 men alive. They had watched as the bow half of their ship had drifted away, carrying their captain and officers, and they had done all that they could. Fired flares, locked down hatch doors, and maintained engine speed. They had placed men on watch for any sign of rescue boats, but nothing so far had been seen. Then one of the men on watch reported that they were watching a small light approaching. It was a pinpoint, but it was a light. The men were too cold and shell-shocked to cheer. As Weber brought his lifeboat closer, his bow light illuminated the name of the ship, the Pendleton, high up along the side of the hulk. Weber thought, how could this huge ship have split in two as they maneuvered the small lifeboat along the port side of the massive stern. Looking up, they could see the twisted, broken deck rails. This is a ghost ship, he thought. Nothing could have survived this. The men are lost. We've risked all this for nothing. Then the lifeboat came around to the gaping hole that had once been connected to the bow. Loose steel beams and plates were visible everywhere. It was a wreck. The sea was lifting the massive ship up and then slamming it down, causing a waterfall of water to pour out as it rose again. Weber guided the lifeboat safely away from this and around the stern, and that's when he saw lights up on the deck and heard a man shouting down at them. The man disappeared and soon reappeared with others. Bernie was taking all this in trying to process it. The stern half of the Pendleton was still afloat and for a moment he wondered if he and his crew should abandon the lifeboat and join them. At that moment a Jacob's ladder, a rope ladder with wooden steps, was thrown down over the side and men were starting to come down. The first man at the bottom was dunked in the water like a tea bag and then lifted 50 feet up in the air as the Pendleton rolled and heaved. Weber sent his crew forward to assist. Then Coxswain Weber skillfully maneuvered the CG 36500 along the Pendleton starboard quarter, and one by one, the Pendleton survivors either jumped or crashed hard on the tiny boat's bow, or crashed and fell in the sea, where Weber's crew assisted them on board at great personal risk. Some Pendleton crewmen were slingshotted out from the ship on the Jacobs Ladder by the whipping and rolling motion of the waves. As soon as they had reached their zenith of flight, the ship would snap roll them back and slam them against the side of the Pendleton. After multiple approaches and 20 survivors safely recovered, the CG36500 began to handle sluggishly. The escaping crew of the Pendleton continued to descend unabated. Weber and his crew knew that their lifeboat was only designed to carry a limited number of people, even in good weather. With too much weight, their engine power would be severely reduced and they would ride low in the water, putting them at greater risk for swamping. But there was no turning back as Coxswain and Weber arrived at yet another defining moment and made the decision that they would all live or they would all die. There was no halfway. And so it went as Weber and his crew literally stuffed their human cargo aboard and risked life and limb again and again. Finally, with 32 survivors on board the CG36500, there only remained the 300-pound giant of a man named George Tiny Myers, the inspiration of the Pendleton crew for his personal heroics, who was suspended at the bottom of the ladder. Myers had distinguished himself by his unselfish attitude in helping the other 32 crewmen before considering his own situation, but Tiny jumped too soon and was swallowed up by the sea. Moments later, he was again visible underneath the stern of the vessel, Clinging to one of the Pendleton's 11 foot long propeller blades. Easing ahead cautiously, Weber felt the stern of the small boat rise as a monstrous wave overtook the CG 36500. The boat was driven ahead faster and faster towards Myers. Coxswain Weber backed his small craft's engine hard, but the boat smashed into the Pendleton and Tiny Myers, killing Myers instantly. The last thing Weber saw was Myers' eyes looking straight at him before the collision. David A. Brown, the first assistant engineer, was the last man down the ladder. Chief Engineer Seibert was already on board the lifeboat, packing his men into whatever spaces they could find. Bernie had them do a head count and they counted 32, the entire remaining crew. With Bernie's four men, the total came to 36, one man for every foot of the lifeboat. Weber keyed the mic on his radio and to his surprise it came to life. His words crackled over the intercom at Chatham Coast Guard Station, where a crowd of men had been waiting for the eerie silence for hours, most of them believing there was no way Webber and his crew could have survived the Chatham Bar, much less the attempted rescue. Webber's voice sounded, This is the CG36500. We have 32 of 33 survivors from the stern of the Pendleton. We are headed home. He turned the lifeboat in the direction he felt was home, having no compass or radar only the waves to guide him. Behind him, before they were out of sight, the huge stern section of the Pendleton took another list, creaked loudly, groaned, and capsized sideways into the sea. It had only been 20 minutes since the last man had come down the ladder. Back at Chatham Station, there was an atmosphere of joy mixed with disbelief. They had figured Webber for dead. But ranking officers were having some tense debates over what to do with Webber's crew and the survivors. Should he head east back into the sea and await pickup from a larger cutter, or head in? With no compass and near zero visibility, his chances of surviving with his overloaded lifeboat were small. The Coast Guard brass was having the same thoughts, although they didn't know his compass was out. Through the radio, Bernie and crew could now hear a squabble breaking out between the nearby Coast Guard cutter McCulloch and the Chatham lifeboat station about various options. These included a suggestion of an at-sea rendezvous with the McCullough and a second transfer of survivors. But Weber couldn't picture his tired and frozen survivors trying to make it up the rope ladders of the McCullough. He had made up his mind. He was headed for Chatham, or at least land. He switched off the radio and devised a plan to beach the CG36500 at the first opportunity. The small vessel would be held on the beach as long as possible with the engine while the survivors clambered ashore. "'Bernie raised his voice so that everyone on the lifeboat could hear him. "'They had all heard the squabble over the radio. "'Fellas, here's what we're going to do. "'We got out here heading into the sea, "'and we're coming back with the sea at our butt. "'We'll hit land somewhere that way. "'If we have to beach it, be ready to get out quickly.' "'Word was passed to those who didn't hear it over the wind. "'Word came back to Bernie. "'We're with you, coxswain.' The Pendleton crew gave a cheer of approval and support and on they motored. On they went through the high waves for an hour with Andy Fitzgerald getting fresh burns while continuing to prime the stalling engine. Bernie had no way of knowing where they were, only that they were approaching land. The rest was instinct. The boat started to pitch and yaw and several times scraped bottom. When that happened, Weber was sure they were over a sandbar then he saw a flashing red light. It was high above him one moment, then below him reflecting off the sea. But then it hit him. It was high up. It had to be the aircraft warning light at the top of the RCA tower at the Chatham radio station. It had to be. He asked his crew to shine a light at the tower and the light picked up a buoy. His heart filled with hope. They were inside the Chatham bar. All he had to do is navigate up the channel and they'd be home. He keyed his radio for the second time that night and said, This is CG36500. We are inside the harbor and heading for the Chatham Fishing Pier. A steady stream of responses came back to him as the men at the station tower tried to guide him in by radar. But that was too little, too late, and he didn't need any of it. He was exhausted. He had gotten this far without help, and he could make it up the channel to the pier. He flipped his radio off and motored onward a crowd of Chatham men, women and children and press met the CG36500 at the pier, securing lines and helping the shocked, excited and in some cases sobbing survivors and rescuers ashore. Photos were taken by the local newspaper of the lifeboat arriving at the pier and we feature those along with others at our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. As the lifeboat was tied off, the exhausted Bernie Weber cradled his head on his forearm at the wheel and said a long prayer of thanks. His thoughts went back to Tiny's eyes just before the waves carried the lifeboat into him, crushing him against the hull of the Pendleton. He thought of the incredible bravery of his own crew, the harrowing ride through the bar, Fitzgerald being thrown around like a rag doll in the engine room, the Pendleton men coming down the rope ladder like so many ants while the ship rocked up and down 50 feet at a time with dizzying speed his tired fingers trembled and his whole body began to shake. Then he cried openly and thanked God again for guiding them home. When most of the crowd had left, guiding the survivors back to the warm station and a doctor, Bernie was still there at the boat. His friend Kelsey helped him up and together they drove back to the station. Weber walked upstairs to his bunk, picked up his phone and called Miriam, kicking off his rubber overshoes. He said... I'm fine. I'll be in touch with you tomorrow. Then he smelled coffee. He walked down to the galley where he saw his crew, Fitzgerald, Livesey, and Mask. They all nodded, but no one said a word. There was nothing they could say. They'd been through hell and back, and they were all due for a long rest. There were still three ship's sections with crews aboard, wondering how long they were going to survive in the high seas and gale winds off of Cape Cod there was much more heroism and courage to come. Join us next week's Sunday night for Part 2, The Conclusion to the 1952 Pendleton Rescue, the greatest Coast Guard rescue of them all. If you enjoy our show, please do send us a review for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Please do support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. The cost of about one blended coffee per month really helps us to move forward, and we appreciate our Patreon supporters very, very much. We appreciate reviews for all of our shows, and today we're going to share reviews from an assortment of our 1001 shows. First, 1001 Heroes. Worth your time, five stars. My wife suggested listening to podcasts at work to help get through the days. Stumbling upon John Hagedorn and his 1001 series of podcasts has been a great surprise, well-researched, and well-spoken. John and his podcasts are an excellent way to whittle away some time. Down from Rollin33, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, titled Mr. Surratt, five stars. Thank you for your well told histories. Your research is impressive. Your storytelling style is inviting. I am happy that we connected. God keep you in the shadow of his wings. Down from Dunkirk, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Sparks My Curiosity, five stars. A vast treasure trove of interesting and often fascinating stories. Quite a few are new to me. Well done. Thanks. Down from Oro de Dio, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Tim from Austria, five stars. Simply my favorite podcast and podcaster. Well done. Down from She Be Little Annoying, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Great Alternative, five stars. I love history podcasts and I'm a big Dan Carlin fan. This podcast is like having a friend say, Have you ever heard this story? I love that I can listen to so many different stories I really didn't know about. He has also made me search for more information on a topic. I've been listening for a week straight. Great stuff. Down from Jedi Tanker 72, Apple Podcasts. And here's a few recent ones from 1001 Stories for the Road, where we do our novel, long format stories. This one, I Am Addicted, five stars. I started listening to this podcast recently and have gotten completely hooked on The House of a Thousand Candles. I have binge listened to it and I'm at the last episode and just dying for next Sunday's episode to come out. I do a lot of cooking and baking and listening to this while I bake allows me to do two things I love at once. Keep it up, please. It's a small but amazingly wonderful distraction to offset the concerning events that are forefront on the news these days. That from CB2018, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one from for 1001 Stories for the Road. Great storytelling, five stars. Thanks for this great podcast. These are fun adventures, extremely well-read by the excellent narrator. Down from Missing61, Apple Podcast, Canada. And this one, great podcast, love the readings. Five stars. I stumbled upon this podcast and listened to part one of the Washington Spies episode because I love the show Turn. I've now listened to Treasure Island, King Solomon's Mines, both of which I've never read, Tarzan, which I have read but love, and The Hound of the Baskervilles, which I also love. These readings are so well done. My kids will be listening to this too. Great job. Can't wait to hear more. Down from Jason Vanek, Apple Podcast, Canada. And for our 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Series is the title of this review, five stars. Have been listening in for such a long time. Storytelling, content, and voice tone is spot on. Thank you. Peter, West Australia. And Bunches of Knuckles, five stars, which was the title of a recent Jack London episode. One word, interesting, down from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And Great Variety of Stories, five stars, as a story for everyone and every occasion on this podcast. I like listening to them while I'm on a walk or before going to sleep. Down from Natalie Thompson, Apple Podcast, U.S. And for 1001 Greatest Love Stories, love, love, love this podcast. Five stars. I've been meaning to write a review of this podcast for some time now. I listened to this new addition to the 1001 family when it launched, and I've loved each episode. I was particularly taken with the first story, Her Letters, which I thought was brilliant, particularly the ending. That one from Aerie from Oz, Apple Podcast, Australia. And also for 1001 Greatest Love Stories, Best Podcasts Ever. Five stars. Very much enjoy the 1001 Podcast. So happy to have found these. Down from MCHSEH, Apple Podcast U.S. And for 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. If you haven't yet had the pleasure of discovering the 1001 Network of Shows, you've been missing out. This is a new edition of Ghastly Classic Tales. As always, the articulate and familiar voice of John Hagedorn guides us through one story at a time, captivating the imagination. Down from OxyDrum, Apple Podcast, U.S. And the Canterville Ghost, five stars. Really appreciate each of John's 1001 podcasts, but if you haven't listened to this Oscar Wilde classic at 1001 Ghost Stories, you must. Thanks, John. Great work. Darren Petch, St. Simon's Island, Georgia. Always wondered about St. Simon's Island. Like to visit there someday. Thank you, Darren. And for 1001 Radio Days, Great Classic Radio, five stars. Great stories. Thank you. That one from Icy Cold Racer, Apple Podcast, Australia. Thank you so much, all of you, for showing us a little love and taking the time to do these reviews. They mean a lot to me. They mean a lot to the show and to our growth, especially with respect to having new people find us. Also, I'd just like to let you know, for those of you who enjoy our author interviews, we do have a 1001 podcast dedicated just to the author interviews, and that was called 1001 History's Best Storytellers. Thank you all so much for being fans. We'll be back next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with Part 2 of the Miracle-Off Cape Cod, the Pendleton and Mercer Rescues. We'll see you then.